Hello and welcome back to 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Craig Johnson. This week we got a lot of news from the United States, but I'm going to first start with a little update from Chile, uh, where an election later this month will decide, well, a lot of things about the country, namely who the next president will be. Uh, there are several competing candidates. One of the most disturbing ones is Kast, uh, who is a right-wing candidate that has been getting a lot of support and backing from various uh, right-wing and conservative organizations, but also some moderate ones as well. The news this week, though, is that the current president of Chile, Piñera, uh, has been impeached by the lower house in that country over corruption, uh, specifically corruption scandal that erupted after uh, documents released from the Panama Papers, which, if you recall, uh, was a leak of documents taken from certain offshore accounts, uh, mainly held by prominent politicians and celebrities uh, worldwide. Chile's election later this month on the 21st of November will probably be a major topic of conversation in this podcast when that election has happened, so stay tuned. Turning to the United States, we got a lot of information about Trump, his supporters, and just the right wing in general in this country. Uh, from the Washington Post, we see that Trump's uh, records, while president, can be handed over to the January 6th investigative committee in the United States House of Representatives. Uh, this is after a series of legal battles by Trump and a bunch of his supporters arguing that executive privilege enables him to refuse to hand over these documents. These documents, the you know, the January 6th committee says, are necessary to engage in their investigation. Trump's allies have said that they're going to appeal this decision pretty much immediately. Um, and we'll just have to see how that court case goes out. Additionally, other officials involved in the Trump administration have received subpoenas from the January 6th special committee. Specifically, Jared Kushner, Donald Trump's son-in-law, married to his daughter Ivanka Trump, has been subpoenaed for his role in the Trump administration. Now, notably, a lot of these officials were not present at the January 6th rally, they didn't speak at it, and they aren't necessarily directly involved in planning it. So it seems as if the committee is expanding its investigation into criminal involvement in the Trump administration in general. Obviously, we don't know exactly what they're getting at here because these subpoenas have not been fulfilled and we don't know what these people are going to be able to testify about. Further talking about January 6th and its aftermath, we have some news from BuzzFeed and also from WBEZ Chicago uh, that the Oath Keepers, the, well, one of the largest paramilitary right-wing fascist organizations in the United States, has a lot of cops and elected officials in its membership. This is continuing fallout from the leak earlier this year, as in, in the fall, uh, of a series of documents related to the Oath Keepers. These are membership files, stuff like that. It indicates that at least 28 elected officials are members of or donors to the Oath Keepers. These include members of the state houses of Alaska and Arizona. There's also evidence that active duty cops in the three biggest cities in the United States, that is New York, L.A., and Chicago, are members of the Oath Keepers. Again, as a listener of this podcast, you know that it's very typical for fascist organizations like the Oath Keepers and just for right-wing paramilitary organizations like the Oath Keepers to seek membership from uh, members of the security apparatus. So that's cops, uh, sheriff's department offices, 
And also, it's very common for them to seek members in the, you know, local political class. So uh, people who are involved in city councilships, people who are aldermen, and also people who are involved in the school board. Speaking of elected officials being involved in fascist activity in the United States, the election that was held last week has elevated 10 new Republican officials uh, to various state and local offices, all of whom were present at the January 6th attempted coup earlier this year. Now, this is from Huffington Post. Three of these people were elected to slate legislatures, two of those in Virginia, and the rest were elected to local offices such as city councilships and school boards. This is on top of several dozen already elected officials, which we know were there. This is again coming from Huffington Post. And obviously the problem here is that we can expect to see a lot more of this, especially considering that this kind of rhetoric played very well to these elected officials' campaigns where and when they ran. In 2022, in 2024, you can expect to see newly elected Republicans and campaigning Republicans to say things like, yeah, you know, I was there on January 6th. That's one of the things about me that you can trust. You know, I was there putting my life on the line for democracy, as they would describe themselves to have been doing. And rounding out the January 6th related coverage this week, Paul Gosar, a Republican official who has been a serious connector between the Trump administration and, you know, Trump's official Republican allies and the sort of outsider, more extremist, radical and fascistic organizations such as the Proud Boys or the Oath Keepers, uh, has been rebuked this week for retweeting a picture, uh, which apparently staffers in his office made, which depicts him killing Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, uh, a fellow congressperson. Uh, this picture is an edited, like a photoshopped version of a scene from the popular anime Attack on Titan, which if you watch anime, you should know is already kind of fascistic in and of itself. So the fact that they picked this particular anime, I guess it's not exactly a surprise. However, a lot of Republicans are saying like, oh, you know, calm down, it's just a joke. But literally what's happening is that a congressman has tweeted a picture of him killing a fellow member of Congress, uh, somebody he presumably, at least on paper, works with. Turning away from January 6th stuff for a second to lighter news, or I guess what passes for lighter news in this podcast, um, we have a QAnon rally from earlier this week. That's uh, the previous weekend. There were major rallies across the country, but the biggest one was in Dallas, Texas. And that was because the QAnon supporters were there to, well, deal with the Kennedy family. Specifically, they thought that JFK Jr., John F. Kennedy's son, uh, the one who is in the famous picture of John F. Kennedy's funeral saluting him as a young boy, that is JFK Jr., JFK's son, who instead of entering politics started a men's fashion magazine and died in a plane crash in 1999. Uh, but these QAnon supporters came to Dallas because they thought that JFK Jr. would I guess, re return from the dead or reveal himself that he was not in fact dead and had instead been living in disguise in various aliases that different QAnon sort of prophets or leaders have claimed that he has been using to hide himself in the intervening 30 years. And they think that JFK Jr. was going to show up at the site of his father's murder to announce a run for vice president as, you know, as Trump's running mate in 2024 as a sort of like oldie time Democrat and Trump Republican unity candidate ticket. 
Some QAnon supporters think that Trump would then uh, resign in order to allow JFK to become the president and, I guess, like, return the country to normalcy and stability that his father provided, I guess, is the idea here. This is evidence of, you know, a lot of what the QAnon supporters want. Uh, it is a need for nostalgia, for a savior to come and return the United States to the way that it always should have been, right? That That's essentially the basis of their claims about Donald Trump and also their connections to various sovereign citizens' perspectives that claim that, you know, at some point, generally in the 19th century, the United States got off the rails, and so all political decisions since then have been illegal and are therefore illegitimate. Uh, the other thing here is that uh, at this rally in Dallas, at one point, QAnon supporters literally lined up single file in order to walk past a man with a live bird on his shoulder who appeared to be giving them individual instructions or like readings or suggestions or revelations. Uh, the QAnon movement has gone full cult at this point, uh, if it hadn't already. Uh, but, you know, single file lining up to get uh, instructions from a bird man might be the uh, the real deciding point there. Turning back to serious news, this week also sees a major escalation in the Kyle Rittenhouse trial. For those of you who don't recall, Kyle Rittenhouse is a, well, he's 18 now, but when he was 17 last year, he killed two people in the streets of Kenosha, Wisconsin at a Black Lives Matter rally. Uh, his two victims are Mr. Rosenbaum and Huber, uh, he also shot a Mr. Grossgreutz in the shoulder. Uh, Kyle's claim is that these were all attacks made in self-defense, and he is currently facing trial for murder. However, the judge, a Mr. Schrader, uh, has said that this trial is literally just about, like, the judge only cares about questions of self-defense here. And so the trial has been a little bit of a shit show. Uh, the judge has been showing clear and transparent bias towards Wittenhouse and towards his ideology. The judge has admitted that he doesn't know anything about contemporary right-wing politics in the United States. He had never heard of the Oath Keepers or the Proud Boys, for example, two organizations that have openly aided Rittenhouse in fundraising and also just like in providing moral and social political support for him. The judge has also prohibited the prosecution and anybody in the trial for referring to Rittenhouse's victims as victims. Uh, he has required the court to refer to them as rioters or looters uh, or by other sort of more neutral terms uh, to indicate that he, you know, he's trying to prevent people from thinking about these people who Rittenhouse admits he shot as victims. Uh, the trial, according to the judge, is just about whether Rittenhouse could legitimately be said to be acting in self-defense. One of his victims, the only living one, Grossgreitz, took the stand on Tuesday and testified in such a way that enables uh, Rittenhouse's defense to arguably suggest that Grossgreitz was behaving in a threatening manner towards Rittenhouse. However, on Wednesday, Rittenhouse himself took the stand, uh, which he, he immediately burst into tears when he was talking about his activities, and so the court had to had to take a recess. Uh, but when he was actually able to speak in his defense, his argument was literally that he felt threatened 
by the two unarmed people, that is Rosenbaum and Huber, and that that is why he had to kill them. Uh, that's Rittenhouse's perspective. His claim is that he was worried that his victims would take his gun and that that would make them a threat to him, Kyle Rittenhouse. And therefore, because he, a man with a gun, was worried that his future victims would take it from him and then threaten him, he had the right to kill them with the gun that he illegally brought across state lines in order to attend this counter-protest. That's just fucking crazy. It's, it, it, it's, it's, it's a terrifying thing for a person to say in a court of law, and it's a terrifying thing that has been getting a lot of support uh, across the extreme right and also in a lot of the mainstream right. Uh, you can see very passionate and sympathetic accounts of Rittenhouse in uh, the Tucker Carlson show, for example. Rittenhouse's defense that he was threatened by the existence of his own firearm and that that enabled him, that that justified him to kill other people is a serious threat to protesters everywhere, especially because it looks very likely that Rittenhouse will either be acquitted or that the trial will be considered a mistrial. This is in part because of complicating testimony on the part of Mr. Grosskreutz, but also in part because of the bias that the judge has shown, and also the bias that some of the other jurors have shown. One of them has already been removed from the trial because he was telling a bunch of racist jokes and indicated that he was in fact right-wing and like had just sort of gotten himself onto this jury. It seems likely that Rittenhouse will be acquitted or that the trial will be a mistrial and that he might face other felony charges like transporting a firearm or having it illegally while he was a minor, but that he will get off for murder. Uh, the prosecuting attorney also notes that Rittenhouse had a medic bag and first aid training, but didn't help his victims and didn't call for aid. All he did was protect himself. Essentially, if Rittenhouse is acquitted or if the trial goes to a mistrial, the lesson will be if you are threatened by protesters, you can kill them. That will be the lesson that right-wing people will see from this trial and they will take that lesson with them as we enter the electoral cycle of 2022 and 2024. These lessons don't go away quickly, especially if they set up actual legal precedent, uh, which is how the United States legal system works. This is an extremely terrifying thing. It's something we are all going to have to be paying very close attention to. Going to close out this week's episode as I do every week with See You in Hell, a segment celebrating the deaths of prominent right-wing figures in history. This week, we are talking about Charles Marat, a prominent French theologian and Catholic integralist who was primarily active in the late 19th century, as well as the early 20th century. Marat is himself known as the organizer of Action Francois, which is a sort of proto-nationalist organization, as well as being the author of several nationalist books, a lot of them dealing with the relationship between nation and church. Uh, he was a theorist and a monarchist, uh, which meant that as time went on and as the French Republic transformed, and especially during World War II, he had a complicated relationship with the remainder of the French right, which had moved in a somewhat more secular right-wing direction. This meant that during the Vichy regime, uh, under German occupation, he wasn't exactly pro-Vichy, but he wasn't opposed to it either. And he had indeed written several pieces uh, supporting the regime, or at least telling people to collaborate with it. This meant that when the 
French nation was liberated by the other Allied forces in 1944, he was imprisoned as a collaborator, uh, where he spent the rest of his life. Eventually, he was transferred to and died in a hospital, actually next week in history, November 16th, 1952. So, Charles Murat, we will see you in hell. All right, that was 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Craig Johnson, thanking Sleepy Kitty Arts, Sleepy Kitty Music for our intro, outro, and graphics. If you enjoyed the podcast, please like, share, and subscribe. Please tell your friends, family, and comrades about it and leave a review on whatever it is you're listening to this on. If you really enjoyed the podcast, check out my Patreon at patreon.com slash 15 minutes of fascism. That's 15 minutes of fascism, all one word. You can also reach me at 15 minutes of fascism at gmail.com if you have any questions, comments, or complaints. All right, I will talk to you next week. Mm-hmm.